0: Hello and welcome to Classique 15, the podcast home of top tips for young and emerging classical musicians. I'm Jack Pepper, I'm a composer and radio presenter, and for 15 minutes we get to have a virtual coffee with an established name in the classical world, finding out about their beginnings, their career since, and their best advice. Today, we welcome the first woman to compose and conduct a symphony in the last 40 years. Shirley J. Thompson has had a host of high-profile commissions. Among the most notable is New Nation Rising, a 21st century symphony. That's been performed and recorded by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Commissioned for the Queen's Golden Jubilee in 2002, it brings together an orchestra, two choirs, solo singers, a rapper and dole drummers. That's nearly 200 performers in total. The symphony tells London's thousand-year-long history and the concept later inspired the London 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony. More recently, Shirley was one of 12 composers to write for the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. And if that wasn't enough, in 2002 she devised innovative arts education programmes, among them the trailblazing Newham Symphony Schools Spectacular, for children aged 7 to 17. That led to the introduction of the national UK education scheme, Every Child a Musician. Well, I caught up with Shirley on a video call and started by asking if she remembers the moment she found her musical voice.
1: Hmm, that's a great question. And it's something that I always put to my students, that um, they come to the first sort of composition and space that I, I run, class that I run. And it's always, you know, perhaps thinking about sounding like other people. And I always say that um, your strength is in your individuality with your own voice, as somebody that expresses music and interprets your imagination. And then you see them relax, their shoulders sort of, you know, come down. I think, yes, that's it. You are what will contribute to the world of music. As well as building on what's come before, but it's really your individual voice, your individual experience. I didn't have such advice, and uh, from my conservatoire days, we were very—it was very much about sounding like Harrison Birtwistle or Stockhausen or Schoenberg or Berg. Or it's very, very Second Viennese School. I was very much in that school of the Second Viennese very much the um, Eastern European style was very prevalent. So Lutislavski, Ligeti, Pendereski, um all those, which I love. I love all that music as well. But I wondered, where do I fit into this? It wasn't necessarily, although I, I could admire it, I didn't necessarily feel it, which is a very different thing. So, um, yes, I had to, it was about for me finding my way into what I was being, the style of music I was being trained to see as the most important aesthetic and um there was a bit of a conflict for me because i like all kinds of music and i see all kinds of music music as being very beautiful and important and strong and i'm passionate about lots of kinds of different music so i didn't see that as just the only way so i gradually probably post going to music conservatoire and so on or studying on an art music course i was writing Pops, paps, posts, kind of Stravinsky, um, which I love Stravinsky's, all Stravinsky's music. I was very much writing that style. I probably do have that kind of way of writing now. I love very dramatic, highly passionate, um, epic kind of sounding music for orchestral music. And that's always a reference point for me, sort of the writer's. Patricia, I, I just love that very vibrant kind of energetic, kind of kinetic kind of music. And um, in finding my own voice, um, gosh, several pieces really, I think it just came so gradually that um, I became more conscious of writing tonal, more melodic music with a piece called um, Blue Iris, which was a study for me in writing a melodic line of 15 minutes for cello so effectively writing an unaccompanied cello line that told its own story Um, I was used to writing much more horizontally i.e writing for ensemble writing for orchestra where you were flitting from line to line um, and not necessarily having that skill of writing and telling a story in one line and I, I felt I succeeded in that in doing that with this piece which is about 15 minutes long um, it's based on really um, Bach unaccompanied cello sonatas, which I love, and um, and it yeah it tells the story of the of flowers really in the, and 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 the blue iris.
0: And so so by by the sound of it, it's an evolution. Then it wasn't a conscious sort of I'm going to be this or I've discovered this. It is it's something you can't force by the sound of it.
1: Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah.
0: And who did you look up to in those earliest days? If you were then going to a music college that was maybe introducing you to other music, it wasn't necessarily the music you wanted to write. Who who were you looking up to? Who was the guiding light or, you know, the, Ooh, the good thanks. advice you were seeking at that point?
1: I was trying to write for television. I was very interested in the moving image. So, in fact, in my very early, when I first started, I got a job commission writing for an eight-part drama series straight out of university again so I had the concert music going on and then I had television music and I was writing music television music for for about 10 years pretty consistently as a freelancer and I loved that as well I I wrote for sort of independent films I loved that exploration it was a it was a dizzying time because I've been exposed to all kinds of concepts in art music such as Lamont Young and his is crayon on floors and stuff like that, (laughs) and the Tracy Emin type concepts of unmade bed. So I've been exposed to all of that within music as well as in in art film that I was making at that time. Um, I've been exposed to all kinds of experimental film as well. So, um, you know, I had these two parallel roads of pure experimentalism, which is all of those directors and filmmakers and composers have come to the fore now which proves that what they were doing was really important at the time and this was in the early 90s late 80s early 90s what I would do now in terms of um, studying with somebody I mean I thought I my mother wanted me to study with Quincy Jones (laughs) she actually sent a letter I don't know where it is in the ether or the post she sent a letter to Quincy Jones saying, when I got my first degree, saying, my daughter's a musician and she really admires your work. I would love to work with you. I'm sure Quincy Jones never received that letter. I would like to meet, meet Quincy Jones. <laughs> but um, I think that whole coming together of contemporary music with the likes of Quincy Jones, um, the likes of Stravinsky, who I greatly admire, Shostakovich, I love that Russian school of, of music going back to, Tchaikovsky really I love really lush beautiful powerful music which I think the Russians are really good at but I also like the English school so we just had the coronation and I was in the abbey listening to that gorgeous tradition of British music and thought wow this is where I'm this is where I'm from you know the parry the Handel, the, the Walton I had um gosh who was I sitting next to was i was sitting next to uh John Rutter Judith Weirle Roxanne Penufnik, I mean we've got such a glorious tr- tradition of British music, so um, I don't know, I'd like to study with them all. I've borrowed from them all.
0: <laughs> well you were one of the coronation composers, you have contributed to this very canon that that you speak of, the triptych oh, for orchestra, you I mean you're very used to those kind of commissions, royal commissions, I think you composed for Commonwealth Day in 1999, I think there was a garden party in Buckingham Palace that you were involved with in 2001, mm-hmm. Golden Jubilee, of course, a whole symphony for the late Queen, and then uh, the coronation this year. How do you as a composer deal with pressure, be that of the commission or pressure you put on yourself? You know, does doubt creep into your mind? Does fear creep into your mind? How do you navigate the pressure of a commission?
1: Prayer. (laughs) I pray very hard. Um, Yes, I, I pray for inspiration One thing my professor, one of my professors, uh, uh, Stanley Glasser said to me, he said, always go with your first instinct. Don't wait for the great idea. Just go with what comes first of all. And I think that's one thing that I've stuck to. I'll get an idea, the very first idea, and normally it's the one. And um, then I, I begin to develop it. So yes, very much a sort of um, celestial inspiration, I do feel that I'm a channel for god's work, and uh, so i I, I, I see, yeah I see myself as a channel and I think because I give that responsibility away, I don't feel that pressure and um, I think really that's been such an important thing to me to have that faith that you know you're only a channel you're just you're just a vessel that this divinity comes through. I think once I started thinking like that, I I tried to take myself out of the equation of writing music or any kind of anything, really, and, you know, leave it to the almighty.
0: So what do you think is the most common misunderstanding or mistake, if we put it that way, made by young emerging composers, the most common misperception of composing?
1: I think in sort of my day, it was everybody trying to sound like the prevailing style of the time. I think what was kind of sad for me was going to lots of contemporary music concerts and there were just one or two people in the audience. I thought this can't be right. There's lots of money being spent on this and uh, it's just not this music just isn't getting an audience and it's been highly celebrated by publishers and newspapers but they were, there were no audiences for this music and I, I found it deeply contradictory that there wasn't an audience for this for me it was about developing my own audience which i started to do i set up my own ensemble in the early 90s grew my audience with south bank center performing in the purcell room once or twice a year and i was always so grateful and so happy to see a full call um, at any times tickets selling out you know within a few days so i knew i had something with the audience i, I think i'd never had it with the press or <laughs> anybody else i had it with an audience and it was always the audience that encouraged me to write because they came to my concerts. They supported me, no, no matter what style I was writing, and they were there was something that they that they took from what I was trying to do. And um, I treated my I treated my um, concerts like a party. You know, welcome to the party, just like Beyonce last night. <laughs> yeah, I treated it my concerts as a party. You know, come to the party, dancing, whatever you want to do, it's it's absolutely fine join in with us on the stage. And, you know, I just tried to relax the audience. So I think it's, I I just tried to make the audience feel included. And I think, you know, your generation is much better at that. You're much more inclusive of your audience. We were not taught to engage with an audience when I was studying music. It was all about the sound and the concept and, you know, it's going to be enjoyed and, you know, it's going to be our brilliant, our genius is going to be recognised in. 300 years maybe not today with the empty halls but oh this can't be right this can't be right I want you know I want an audience now and um, it, yes it's very much it was about build your audience build you know start with your family start with your aunts and uncles start with your cousins and you know build from that that small pool and um, yeah I tried to I think very much when I was at uh, conservatory it's very much peer-to-peer you know, you got a pat on your back from your, your fellow composer or publisher or whatever. But I was much more interested, in, you know, what did my aunt think of this? What did my neighbor across the road think of this? And they would all come to the concerts my hairdresser, my everybody came to my concerts. So um, I wanted a music for everyone. You know, it wasn't, I didn't want it to be just a classical music audience necessarily. People used to go into classical music. I was really aiming for people that would hear music in films, because we're surrounded by classical music, but we don't necessarily identify with the music within films, for example, and, and so on. So I think we have a huge potential audience,
0: but they're untapped. So what, what do you think is the most important quality for a composer today then? Be, be that a sort of, it could be a personality quality in, in order to compose. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think is the most important thing for a composer today to be?
1: Certainly themselves. I mean, I see myself as somebody that's on a journey just trying to find myself within music. And um, I'm always listening to lots of different types of music, looking at performers. I want to be evolving all the time. I think it's very important to be skilled in musicology, um, orchestration. So I think, first of all, you do have to have those rudimentary skills and talent. And um, I think ultimately you can't develop as a composer without those very basic skills, but the most important, I spent three years writing Bach fugues, Palestrina, choral works, yep, the grounding. I studied Harmony and Counterpoint non-stop at university, my first degree, for three years, and I think that's really served me very well, and a little orchestration, but it was really Harmony and Counterpoint to a very high degree and intensity that I lean on. And Mm -hmm. then once you have a strong grammatical music, grammatical base, you can do anything. So I considered that, you know, when a director for a TV series would say, you know, I want this pastoral passage sounding like blah, blah, blah. I would say, oh, do you mean a bit of Mozart? You know, and I can write in that style. Mm -hmm. You know, if they want a bit of Beethoven, I can write in that style. And that's what you learn if you've studied harmony and counterpoint and orchestration, thoroughly you can write in any style and i value that i can hear a style and i can write in it because i have the tools yeah it's getting those tools first of all
0: and and in learning about other styles you discover your own by the sounds of it as right well. not oh beautiful People. and then you're yeah. yourself is there, is there a mantra you live by shirley because i'm always you're so sort of you always radiate such not just music but joy and positivity around the process and you know things like the coronation there'd be many people who would be tearing their hair out around knowing that they've got you know an audience of the world and uh, is, is there a sort of a line that you you live by something you carry with you well
1: as i say i think i'm a channel for god's work and um, i think if the Almighty doesn't want to imbue me with the right the right tune or the right music at that particular point, um, I have to wait for that. Yeah, I think having a strong faith and um, just not taking myself at all seriously, I just see myself as a channel for God's work. And, you know,
0: there it is. Shirley J. Thompson, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jack. Thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Classique 15. All the episodes in the series are available on the usual podcast platforms and online at classique.com, where you'll also be able to find all of Classique's news, their online concert series and video on demand. Also, do check out their social media for the very latest updates and opportunities at Classique Music. Thanks so much for joining me, Jack Pepper, and until the next time, enjoy the music.